Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. Our text this morning is uh, verse 7 through 12. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand together and we'll read that passage and then pray for the Lord's help as we study the Word this morning. Malachi 3, beginning in verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall, field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this occasion to study the Word, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would do His work among us by helping us to understand it and to apply it rightly. We pray, Father, that He would impress upon our hearts this morning the truth that we and everything that we are belong to you, and that we would cheerfully, gladly surrender ourselves, our lives to you, Father. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Some of you may be surprised that we already took the offering. A passage like this may make more sense to wait until the end, right? I think there probably are not a whole lot of Christians, just as a proportion of the whole who have ever heard a sermon series through the entire book of Malachi. That's probably a small group who've heard the whole book preached. But many, many Christians have heard a sermon on this passage, and and maybe multiple sermons on this passage. This is maybe one of the most preached passages in the Old Testament, and it's typically preached by churches who want to increase the financial giving in in their congregation. For that reason, many of us, when we come to Malachi 3 in our, in our devotional reading, we associate this passage with the passing of the offering plate. And my prayer has been and, and is this morning that if as we encounter this passage in the future, we think of an offering plate, we, we envision putting ourselves into that plate. Because that is what the Lord wants. He wants all of us. Every part of us as an offering to Him. Our, our study of Malachi has been focused on the issue of empty worship. Bringing offerings to God from hearts that do not belong to Him. 
And we found that empty worship is fearless. That is, it does not come from a heart that reveres and values God. In fact, it values God's gifts more than it it values Him. We found that empty worship is faithless in the sense that while giving God gifts, we are faithless in our relationships with one another, thereby dishonoring Him. We found that empty worship is shameless in that It offers God outward worship while accusing Him of withholding justice, the very justice that He has graciously withheld from us. This morning we find that empty worship is selfless and not in a good way. Before we get to that, the prophet is going to call all empty worshipers to repentance. It's going to call us to repentance. That's the first point in your notes. Empty worship calls for repentance. So let's go, let's go back to verse 7. Look at that again. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This verse is, is something like a high watermark in, in Malachi. It, it contains... Words that Zechariah began with, if you can remember back that far, return to me and I will return to you. It it, it indicates to us what God is actually after in this passage and throughout the the Bible. What does He really want? Is it our money? Yeah, He wants our money, but He wants our money as an emblem of hearts that trust Him with everything and trusting ourselves to Him. He wants us. And repentance is the answer to empty worship. When we engage in empty worship, giving God something less than He deserves, or engaging in false worship or idolatry, the Bible teaches that this actually affects our fellowship with Him. It's like, it's, it's like there's, there's a wall between us and God. And it's not that we're, we're no longer saved. It's not that we're no longer His children. But in a sense, we have moved away from Him in favor of something else. We found something else more desirable than Him, something that we trust more than we trust Him. And that's why David prays the way he he does in Psalm 51. He prays, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. He is feeling the, the, the distance between himself and the Lord. So he's repenting of his sin. He's turning away from this thing that has come between him and the Lord. He's saying, I want you back. Please restore to me the joy of my salvation. The wonderful thing is that God promises that when we do that, when we return to him, we'll know that joy once again. Return to me. I'll return to you. It's a wonderful thing that the Lord has so kindly put that, those words, that idea so often in the scriptures. I think it's an indication how often we need to hear it. Because we have hearts that are prone to stray. Return to me, I'll return to you. Calling us to repentance, to turn away from one thing and toward Him, to give ourselves to Him. Now, we, we can't repent if we don't know how we've strayed, and that leads to the next thing that, that Malachi puts in front of us, and that is that we should recognize our robbery. That's the next point in your notes. Recognize your robbery. Recognize your robbery. Verse 7. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. 
But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. The people, they, they don't think that they've wronged God at all. If they have, they certainly don't know how. So they're saying, how should we return to you? What is it that you want us to repent of? And God says, robbing me. Stop robbing me. See, the, the people of the Old Testament in the Old Covenant, they, they were required to give a tenth of the fruit of their land and to make various other contributions to the temple. Because they had not done that or had not done so faithfully, God said to them, you are robbing me. Now that's interesting language. You're robbing me. We may wrongly regard this as a situation where the the Israelites have failed to pay a bill. But because God has said, you're robbing me, I don't think that's the right way to understand this. Because if you think about... uh, Think about racking up this a huge credit card bill and you don't pay it. Or you don't pay your mortgage for month after month after month, maybe a year. You're never going to be arrested and charged with robbery because it isn't robbery. It's, it's not paying a bill. It's not that the people haven't paid a bill. They have taken what belongs to God and treated it as their own. So we might then think about two questions that would seem to present themselves to us. The first is, well, then what does God own? The second is, what does it say about the people that they were taking what belonged to God and keeping it for themselves? What does it say about them? What does God own? What does it say about them that they were robbing God, keeping these things for themselves? The answer to the first question could be found in Psalm 24 taking notes, you might write down Psalm 24.1. It reads this way, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. What is the Lord's? The earth and everything on it, including the souls living there. Everything that breathes belongs to God. Psalm 50 also worth writing down. In Psalm 50, God makes the point that because He doesn't have needs, He doesn't need the people's offerings. It's not like He's hungry. And that was the conception of the people as they were worshiping false gods. False gods in other nations, when they're offering offerings to these false gods, it's because they're feeding those gods. And God's saying, look, don't, don't confuse me with all the, of your false gods. I don't get hungry. Even if I was hungry, I wouldn't ask you for food. I own it all. I've got all the cows. If I was hungry, I'd eat one of my own cows. I own them all. I'd eat one of your cows. What you think is one of your cows. That's actually my cow. That's a a point that, that he makes in Psalm 50. Everything belongs to me. The people have withheld material offerings. By thinking that they own those things... They've actually taken what rightly belongs to God, used it for their own purposes. God characterizes that as robbery. On a deeper level, they have failed to recognize that God owns them. All right? We'll get more into that here shortly, but let's think about that second question. What does it say about them that they were keeping the things that belong to God, that they were keeping those for themselves? It says about them the same thing that we recognized in our first message in Malachi. They value God's gifts above God himself. 
See, they're, they're, they're saying to God, by not giving him what, what belongs to him, by taking it and keeping it for themselves, they're saying, we want this stuff more than we want you. We trust in these things. If, if we don't have these things, we don't know what we're going to do. That They don't trust God. More importantly, and, and perhaps a better way to think of it, is that they have not entrusted themselves to God. If you read Psalm 50 closely at all, you'll find that that's actually what God wants. He's saying, look, I don't need your offerings. What I want is for you to entrust yourself to me and recognize you're the one in need. You need me. God actually wants them. And though here in Malachi 3, he's calling them out for withholding tithes and contributions, what he ultimately wants here in Malachi 3 is explicitly them. Look again at verse 7. He says, return to me. He wants them. And he wants them to entrust themselves to him and to demonstrate that by then giving right tithes and offerings. Entrust yourself to me and then give me my stuff and thereby say, we trust you, God, and not the stuff that belongs to you. But they failed to recognize God's ownership of all things, including themselves. They've, they failed to surrender themselves to Him and to entrust themselves to Him. So their offerings have been selfless in that sense. In the sense that they've held themselves back from God. They've given Him other things instead. And about that whole situation, God is saying, you have robbed me. That's a marker of empty worship. It is selfless. We give God this, that, this other thing. We withhold ourselves. The passage, this passage notes the people withholding tithes and contributions. This, the, the, those tithes and contributions, that is just emblematic of their own lives, which is what God really wants. Now, we might ask ourselves, if we're, if we're really New Testament-minded and we like to make a hard distinction between Old and New Testament, we might say, well, what, what is the appropriate offering for a New Testament believer? Well, I would argue that it's, it's the same. It, it is not simply that God wants our money. He, he, he does want us to trust Him with, with the money that He has given to us, but He wants so much more than that. The, the appropriate offering for a New Testament believer, you know, I've, I've, I've already briefly made the case that the Old Testament teaches that all things belong to God, including us, and that God wasn't interested merely in the monetary and physical offerings of the people as much as He was in them entrusting themselves to Him, offering themselves to Him. That actually is the straightforward, explicit teaching of the New Testament. That's what God wants of believers. You might write down 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. There Paul writes, You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. You don't belong to you. Now we might think, well, goodness, I don't want to be owned by anybody. Given you know our, our history with slavery in this country, such a dark, terrible thing. It's got a horrible picture. We might think, oh, I don't want to be owned by anything. We've got to understand we were born owned. We were born owned by sin and death 
by virtue of the fact that we were descended from Adam. See, Adam sold every one of us, sold himself and every one of us into slavery to sin and death by his very first sin. And it's not like we were sore at him over it. We all joined him in, joined him in it, the very first opportunity we, that we had. I mean, with, with our very first breath, we began delighting to rebel against God. If we take the Bible seriously, we have to understand that not only do we not have the, the means to free ourselves from slavery to sin and death, we don't even want to. We, we love sin and we love rebelling against God. But the problem is that that rebellion has a price tag, doesn't it? it? The price tag comes in the form of eternal death under the wrath of Almighty God. So we, in our natural state, we want the sin, we love the sin. We do not want that price tag. And so we look desperately for ways to get out of the price tag. Well, even if we could, even, even if we were to look at the things in Scripture, that the Scripture would say, well, this is what needs to happen in order for us to be freed from that, we can't do it. Because there are two things that need to happen in order for us to be freed from sin and death. First of all, our sins have to be atoned for perfectly. And that's impossible for us because we're finite beings. Finite beings cannot atone for infinite offenses against an infinitely holy God. That's the first thing that has to happen. Our sins have to be atoned for. Secondly, we have to perfectly obey the law of God without error. That's not happening either because Romans 8, 7 says that the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. We cannot submit to God's law. We're born rebels. And so we can't do the things that need to be done in order for us to be freed from sin and death. We're doomed in ourselves. If we would be freed, somebody else is going to have to do it. The problem is that because we're all humans and we're all in that same boat of sinfulness, who's going to do it? Well, there's only one. Only one. The eternal Son of God. He took on human flesh. On human flesh did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived perfectly. He died sinlessly in our place on the cross. And three days later, he rose from the death, proving to everybody, I just defeated sin and death. And now I have the right to give freedom to everyone who repents and trusts in me. Here's the... Here's a really interesting thing, though. The Bible characterizes that freedom that Christ bought for us, freedom in Christ, characterizes it as slavery to Christ. Here's another reference worth writing down, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live, that those who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, Jesus didn't free us from sin and death so that we could just go off and do our own thing. He freed us from sin and death so that we could be enslaved to him, so that he could be our master. And again, that word master has got this terrible historical connotation here, and, and, and rightfully so, but we need to do our best to recreate that word through the Scriptures, right? Because what do we find as we walk with Jesus through the Gospels? We find 
a kind and gentle master in Jesus. And those of us who have walked with him for any length of time, we have found him to have spoken truthfully when he, when he said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. for Take, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, even, even in that passage where the, the Lord Jesus beckons to us so sweetly, and, and so many of us have found it to be true. Yes, He is gentle and lowly and sweet. Even that passage speaks of Him as Master. He's very honest about this. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. We've been bought with a price, and that price is the sinless Son of God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 You are not your own. If we had the time to go to 1 Corinthians 6, we'd find that that context is speaking to how we are required to honor God with our bodies. With our bodies. See, some people in, in the, the church there at Corinth, they thought that because, because they'd been washed in the blood of Christ, well, now they can do whatever they want with their bodies, including engaging in sexual immorality. Paul argues from the greater to the smaller in verses 19 and 20. He says, no, you, you can't do whatever you want with your body, this, this part of you, because God has bought all of you. You're, you're not your own. All of you, all of you has been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with this part of you, your body. And for some of us, that may cut a bit to the quick this morning. We're called to be good stewards of our bodies. Now, I wonder how many of us this morning are, are living like our bodies are our own rather than vehicles for service to God, owned by Him, of which we are merely stewards. How well are we maintaining these bodies that Paul refers to as the temple of the Holy Spirit? We can't do whatever we want with our bodies. Belong to Him. It is our worship, Paul teaches in Romans 12.1. It is our worship to treat our bodies as living sacrifices to God. And he goes on to teach it is our worship to treat our entire selves as living sacrifices to God. Essentially saying to God, look, Father, my entire being, I recognize it all belongs to you, so I'm going to consider myself a steward of my own person for your glory. The New Testament, the New Testament presses in on this point just so that we understand exactly how far his ownership goes. <coughs> so I'm going to give you a few examples. Examples of things that we, we might not think belong to God, um, especially in this country. First of all, Christian liberties. <coughs> Paul argues that not even my so-called Christian liberties are mine. I sacrifice them willingly for the body of Christ. We, we, we learn about that in Romans 14 and, and 1 Corinthians 8. So if something that I, that I enjoy 
is harmful to another member of the body of Christ. I jettison that thing. I do it gladly. Why? It's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. I'm, I'm not mine. I'm, I'm the Lord's. I, I'm at, at His disposal in everything that I enjoy at His disposal. My career, my work, that's His. Colossians 3, 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. Jesus Christ is your boss. Your, your workplace life, your career, all of that is His. It, it doesn't belong to you. My gifts, my talents, not mine, they're His. Ephesians 4, 7 and following teaches that Jesus has given me gifts, given you gifts. And has explicitly, He explicitly teaches those are not for, for our individual benefit. He didn't give me a gift for me to benefit from, but for you to benefit from. He gave you gifts not for you to benefit from, but for everybody else to benefit from. You can find cross-references to that effect in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Peter 4. So I wonder if there are any of us this morning who have gifts that God has given to us designed for being a blessing to other people that we have sitting on a shelf somewhere, so to speak. Do you know what God would call that? What would God call that if, if we're taking Malachi seriously? If we're going to put one word on that, it starts with an R. Robbery. To take these gifts that God has entrusted to us and put them on a shelf. I'm not serving anybody with it. Robbery, says the Lord. What else? What else belongs to the Lord? What doesn't? What doesn't? Everything. My, my love, my time, my stuff, everything. My, my faculty of speech, my faculty of thought, my affections, everything, all of it belongs to Him. And anything about which... I hold an attitude toward the Lord where, where I'm saying, this really is mine. This really is mine. I, I, you can have all of this other stuff. This thing, I'm going to hang on to it. First of all, I need to understand that that's not true. It isn't mine. It's his. And secondly, it's robbery. It belongs to God, all of it. Now, I wonder... If, if, if we were to just pause here and think about these things as, as, as they pertain to each of us individually, I wonder where the Holy Spirit might be pressing on your heart right now. What is it? Is there something that, something in your life about which you have been saying either by your actions or, or maybe even you've said this in, in a prayer in some sense, Lord, this thing, I just can't give it to you. You can have all this other stuff, but not this. What is that thing? You know, you might as well admit it this morning before the Lord because that, the Holy Spirit is nothing if not persistent. For the, for the time being, let's just grab that thing. Okay, we'll sit it off to the side. Just sit it on the pew there right next to you. Don't, don't put it away completely. Um, there, there's something coming toward the end of the message that you'll need to hear as it pertains to that thing. All right? But now look again at verse 9. Verse 9 you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. What is that curse that they're enduring? Well, the people were not prospering materially. We learned this back in Haggai, if you remember. God was withholding rain from them. He was withholding the fruit of the land from them. They were not enjoying 
this promised land that they had been brought back to from exile the way that they might have had they been faithful. Now, we've had occasion through this series to to realize that when the prophets speak of the fruit of the land, grain, wine, oil, animals, they're talking about implements of worship. These are the things that the people would bring in offerings to the Lord, and so they are emblematic of enjoying God's presence. This is especially clear in Joel. I know I've mentioned this numerous times, but I'm just going to do it this one more time today. I'll probably do it again another time in coming weeks, but only once today. In, in Joel, God, God, God judged the people by taking the fruit of the land away from them. And it, it, it's clear there that, that what he's really doing is he's removing from them the blessing of his own presence because they don't have the things that they need in order to worship him with. All right? Later in Joel, he promised he's going to give them the fruit of the land back, and that is a picture of him giving himself back. So the curse for these people is that they, yeah, they've, they've, they've literally lost material goods. But what's at the heart of this is that they are far from God. They're not enjoying this God who has delivered them from the enemy. When we rob God, we experience something very similar. Remember, remember Psalm 50, I've, I've already mentioned it. God doesn't need anything. <clears throat> In Psalm 50, the people, they were bringing their offerings, but not their hearts. They thought that God needed them, but they didn't recognize in their hearts and in their worship that they needed Him. They needed needed fellowship with God. And so in that psalm, God is saying, I don't need your cows. I'm not hungry. You need me. And true worship is an expression of that reality. Empty worship, on the other hand, says to God, God, I don't need you, I need your stuff, and that's why I'm keeping so much of it. That I, I'm trusting the stuff. If you were trustworthy, I would, I would give you these things, and I would trust you to, to take care of me. So, in that, so, so here, here, here's what we need to keep in mind. When we withhold from God, He's not starving, we are. That's what He's trying to, to get across in Psalm 50. When we withhold from God, He's not starving. We are. We're trading, trading a birthright for a bowl of stew on a cosmic scale. We think that we're taking care of ourselves by holding from God what we need. We're actually missing out on what we need more than anything, and that is Him. With true worship, when we, when we give God these things, we, what we're saying to God is, Father, we're thankful for these things, but we don't depend on them. What what we depend on, what we need is you. And we trust you. Please take care of us. We trust you to. You are what we want. So the curse of empty worship is really self-inflicted. We don't recognize our need for God. We don't value Him. So we don't give Him everything that He deserves, and so we don't enjoy Him. Because we don't see Him at work in our lives. We're not fellowshipping with Him. We don't get more of what we really need, and that is Him. When we withhold our money, listen to this, when we withhold our money, it's because we don't trust Him. We think that if we don't have that money, if I don't have that money, I will not be okay. Don't trust you, God. If, if I'm withholding my time from God, 
It's because I don't trust him. Lord, if I give you this time, I'm not going to have the time to do this other thing that I think is important. I don't trust you. It's a form of idolatry, really. It's, I, I'm trusting in these other things. I'm trusting my time. I'm trusting my, my money. I'm trusting all of these other things. I don't trust you with it, Lord. Now, about this, God is, God is saying, look, people, repent of this. Repent of this. He, he, he wants to do us good. Look, you're, you're starving here. So give up these things that you think are feeding you and let me really feed you. So he's calling us to repentance. And so we're repenting. We're turning away from this thing of, of robbery, keeping back from God what, what belongs to him. What are we turning toward? We're turning toward giving God what he deserves, and that is everything. And that's the, the next point on your notes. Give God what he deserves, everything. Verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. The full tithe for the people of Judah was to bring a tenth of all their goods, grain, wine, oil, etc. The food that he mentions here is the food for the priests. The priests lived off of these offerings. People brought this stuff to the temple. The, uh, uh, the people brought this stuff to the temple. The priests lived on it. Because the people are not bringing the stuff the priests are out having to forage for themselves. You can read about this in Nehemiah. So the Lord's saying, look, bring what is mine so that my work can be done. Now, there is nothing like a, a, a tithe mentioned in the new covenant. So we might think, praise God for that, right? What, what obligation is placed on us in the new covenant? 100% of everything that I am and have. 100% of everything that I am and have. I have been bought with a price. It's all His. I'm a steward even of my own person. I'm a steward even of my own person. So the Holy Spirit presses that upon us in the new covenant, and the apostles come alongside us in passages like 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and they say, yeah, this has financial ramifications. So when, when you and I understand that every dollar in our pocket belongs to Him, what does that free us to do? It frees us to give joyfully, sacrificially, and proportionally to gospel ministry. Joyfully, sacrificially, and proportionally to gospel ministry. All three of those things are key. I want to say something about sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving is, 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 is a level of giving that forces me to the place of trust. It, 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 it's giving that, that gets me to the place where I say, look, Lord, on paper, humanly speaking, I'm not sure how this is going to work out. But I trust you. Trust you completely. It's your money. I don't trust this money. I trust you. I believe what the Scriptures say. It's going to be fine. Further, the New Testament Scriptures in that passage would teach us that all of that money that is still in my pocket, that also is God's. So I'm not going to act like the money that I have not given to the church. Oh, now that I've just got... I've got a green light from God to spend that however I want. No, I'm going to be a good steward of that as well. I'm going to be wise 
with that money. I'm going to be so wise with it when I, that when I see the needs of other people, I can easily meet those needs, give sacrificially to them. Because it's not mine, it's His. The New Testament would teach us also, it's not just your financial life, it's your time. Now, now we, we could spend all day here going through a bunch of different things. I'm just going to hit a few. Your time. What about your time? Think, think about, about your time, every minute of it, as belonging to the Lord's. Some of us may approach our calendars each day thinking, how am I going to spend my day today? Or how am I going to allot my time? Just a, a simple change in wording there can, can lead to a completely different mindset. Because that isn't my time, it isn't your time, it's the Lord's time that we are stewards of and we are to be investing it. Ephesians 5, Paul tells us how to, how to invest it. He says, make the most of that time. He uses the word redeem it. Speaking of it, this is valuable. Get, get a return on that time because the days are evil. The days are working against you. The evil around you, it's working against you to prevent you from giving God a return on the time that He has entrusted to you. Work hard to bring a return for that time. I would encourage you to, to evaluate what you've done over the last week with what we might refer to as free time. What have you done with your, with your free time? We, we, we know that God expects us to invest what He's given us. How have you invested that free time? A lot of us really, we jealously guard that free time, don't we? Um, goes by other names. Winding down time. Vegging time. And th- relax for a second, okay? There's some legitimacy to that, all right? I mean, we're, we're finite beings, and part of being a good steward is resting, right? I am not at all an advocate of burning your brain or your body at, at both ends, so to speak, so that you're no good for service to anybody or to the Lord. In fact, it may be that there are people here this morning who are doing that very thing. They're burning themselves at both ends, and that's how they're being poor stewards. They are not taking care of themselves by resting so that when they are rested, they are able to give themselves fully and effectively to the Lord. So this is not a speech against rest or mental rest or anything, okay? But there may be some of us who have persuaded ourselves that all of this, all of this so-called free time is not only ours, but it has actually been created by God. It is designed by God for binging on Netflix and scrolling through Instagram or, or things like that. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things, but, but, but think about, go, go back to that concept of, I'm investing time, investing. And th- there are parables that Jesus told about the fact that he's actually going to come asking for the return on these things. What, what did you do with this thing that I entrusted to you? Time is part of that, right? Now, resting by watching TV or, or, or engaging with folks on Social media, again, nothing inherently wrong with that, but should we use all of our free time to do that kind of thing? Are there other worthwhile things that we can be doing for the kingdom? Even things that are restful to us that we could be doing to, to get a better return on the Lord's time. 
I, I would encourage you to, to bookend your day with prayer about this issue of time. A, a, a prayer in the morning, perhaps, recognizing the reality. Lord, this day is yours. I recognize every minute of it is yours. I've planned stuff because I want to be a good steward. I want to use that time wisely, but I recognize it's yours. I recognize your absolute ability to change anything that I've got on the agenda. And by your grace, I'm going to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading regarding those changes. It's yours. Please help me. Please help me to be a good steward. The other bookend prayer, maybe a prayer at night, reporting to the Lord how he used his time. A form of accountability so that we don't fall into that habit, back into that habit of thinking that the hours are ours. Because they're not, they're his. Other things, other things that, that the, the, the New Testament would say belongs to the Lord. Our faculty of speech, our faculty of thought, our ability to love. Think about how we're using these things. Are, are we using them for our own glory or are we surrendering them to the Lord? Think about how you have spoken, thought, loved the things that you've loved in the last week. Any of those things that the Lord would find a dishonoring to Him and therefore not an act of worship. Anything like that? Well, we should confess that to the Lord and say, look, I've, I've, I've taken this thing that belongs to you, Lord. My faculty of speech, my faculty of thought, my ability to love. I've used that for myself. Please forgive me. Help me to direct these things toward activities that honor you. Whatever the Lord has brought to your attention this morning, just don't don't leave it in your sermon notes. Make a plan. Make a plan this morning. This is what I'm going to do. These are the steps that I'm going to take to incorporate this into my life and be a faithful steward of the Lord. Great kindness of God is is shown in the final verses of this passage. So he's, he's called us to, to turn away from robbery, to give him what he deserves. And then, so kindly, he's, he, he tells us to expect an outpouring. And that's the last point on your notes. Expect an outpouring. Verse 10. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there's no more need, I'll rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord says, test me. See what will happen if you give me what belongs to me. I will pour out a blessing on you. And if, if, if the people brought their offerings as required by God, He promises. He, he's going to bring the fruit of the ground to them. He's going to bring the fruit of the vine to them. He's going to prevent animals and insects from, from, from spoiling that fruit. And all of these surrounding nations that they're so envious of, He's going to make those nations envy them. That was the promise of God. Now, this, this is the kind of passage that is a favorite of the so-called prosperity gospel movement that some of us are familiar with. The prosperity gospel movement views passages like these to speak literally of material blessings that come from giving your monetary offerings to God. And it actually, the, the metaphor that we used in Malachi at the very beginning of thinking of God as a vending machine, you plunk your coins in, he spits out blessings. That's a great metaphor for the 
for the prosperity gospel movement. The idea is give God this or that, and he is going to make you physically healthy and wealthy. And I've I've already made the case that passages like this speak metaphorically of the blessings of knowing God. But think about that idea that that comes at us from, from the prosperity gospel. Give money to God. He'll rain down money on you. And think about the, how you have to torture the New Testament to fit it into the New Testament. Think about how our brothers, John and Rick, have been preaching through Acts. We, we, th- th- those were the all-stars in Acts. I mean, they, they were knocking it out of the park, those believers, doing everything right. They were, they were giving themselves completely to the Lord, giving it all to the Lord. Do we, do, do we see the Lord raining down money on them, raining down health on them, we, we just don't see it. What do, we, what do we find them encountering? We find them encountering the kinds of things that, that, that Paul mentions at the end of, of Romans 8. Persecution, nakedness, famine, sword. Things that, that, they, that would cause them to fear. Oh, we're separated from the love of Christ. They're, they're things so bad that Paul had to assure them these things are not going to separate you from the love of Christ. The prosperity gospel, it just cheapens Jesus into this sugar daddy in the sky who's obligated to do whatever we tell him to if we just push the right buttons. It's a theology that puts us in the driver's seat. Jesus is in the back seat. It's atrocious. The worst thing about it, perhaps, is that it, it, misses, it misunderstands the nature of true riches. The nature of true riches, if we're listening closely to these prophets, if we listen closely to the apostles, what do we find? That the real blessings poured down by giving ourselves over completely to the Lord is meaningful fellowship with God in Christ. Do you remember that great story in Genesis 22? Some of you, some of you, Genesis 22 sparks an immediate story in your mind. God said to Abraham, the beginning of Genesis 22, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Why do we remember that story? Because it's nuts. The whole thing is, it, it is just crazy. What a crazy request from God. And what a crazy demonstration of obedience. I mean, Abraham actually does it. He doesn't waver at all. Gets his son, packs on the wood, packs on the fire, grabs the knife, heads up the mountain. Isaac Isaac notices there's something missing here. We don't have an animal. <coughs> what, is, what does Abraham say to his son? The Lord will provide. The Lord will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. There's, there's so much conjecture that, that, that we could engage in. To think, what, what's going through Abraham's mind? What's he thinking? Maybe Abraham suspected that God would stop him at the last minute, which is what he did. We don't know everything, but we know at least this. We know that there was, there was a backstop in Abraham's mind. The author of Hebrews tells us about it. Abraham knew that even if God allowed Abraham to kill Isaac, he would raise Isaac from the dead. Why? Because God promised to make a nation of Isaac 
and God keeps His promises. Abraham knew. He believed. One way or another, this day ends with Isaac standing next to me. Now, Abraham, he he, he could have held Isaac back. He could have. I mean, that would have been the safe play. If, if, if Isaac is the point for, for Abraham, he could have held Isaac back. He would have been assured, yeah, Isaac is going to be with me. Isaac's going to be alive. But by laying Isaac down on that altar, he's saying to God, I trust you. You're my God. This boy is not my God. I trust you to do what you've told me that you're going to do. Now, what did Abraham get as a result of laying Isaac down? Now, we might say, oh, he got Isaac back. I, I, would, I would present to you that he got something much better than Isaac back. He got that, but he got the most personal and precious demonstration of God's faithfulness imaginable. Do, do you think that God was ever more real and alive to Abraham than in that moment when that angel held his arm back? I mean, Abraham believed God was faithful before Moriah, he knew God was faithful after Moriah. He knew it. He had, he, had, he had experienced the faithfulness of God because he said, I trust you with this, and God poured out blessings on him. Now, of course, that picture, that scene points forward to the cross. The lamb that God substituted for Abraham's only son was emblematic of God's only son who was substituted for you and me. Jesus faced a very similar choice the pinnacle of his life. Is he going to lay down his own life and trust the Father with what the Father has said is going to happen? Jesus was understandably hesitant. Prayed, Lord, if if it's possible, keep this cup from me. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. He trusted the Father. And so he, he, he went to the cross and he gave himself up completely. Ultimately, why? Because he trusted the Father. He trusted the Father, gave his own life to God, said, I trust you with this, and I know that on the other side of this cross, you are going to raise me imperishable, and I'm going to be able to give all the blessings in the heavenly places to my brothers and sisters who I am buying now. Give abundantly of yourself to God. He's inviting you to test Him. Just test me. See what happens. See if you don't find Him faithful. See if He doesn't pour out the heavens on you in, in the form of joyful fellowship with Him that you have never known. See if you aren't spiritually prosperous in a way that you have only hungered for all your Christian life. Now that thing that that the Holy Spirit was pressing upon your heart earlier in the message that we kind of set off to the side, grab that again and let's bring it to the fore. Think about that. That thing that you have hesitated to give to the Lord, you've been holding it back. These things, and I don't know what it is for you. It may be a garden variety thing like time, money, stuff, love, life, hobbies, whatever. We say about these things to God, this is mine, you can't have it. I really don't trust you. The thing, the thing to realize is that He lets you keep it. 
Think about what it costs you. To keep that thing, it costs you more of Him. But when you let that thing go, understanding, this, this is His anyway. And, and I'm His. And he, he is the trustworthy God of the universe. I can trust Him. You, you put it in front of Him and say, it's yours, all of it. Do with it what you will. What do we get in return? Heaven opens up and He pours out all His blessings upon us in the form of deeper fellowship, greater joy, more Jesus. Listen, it's so much better than that created thing that we've been holding on to, clinging to ourselves. If we understand this rightly, we have to agree that only a fool would hold on to those things in light of what there is to gain. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, this morning, take that thing in these moments. In a a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to have a moment of silent reflection. I, I, I encourage you in that moment, take that thing, put it before the Lord and say, I trust you. And if you're struggling to trust Him, then borrow the words of the Scriptures and say, I believe, help my unbelief, it's yours. Let's see what happens. Let's pray. Father, you have spent all history demonstrating to us that you are the kind of God who can be trusted. Not only do you do what you say, but all the promises that you have made to us are promises that are beneficial to us. They're loving to us. What a kindness. What a kindness. We confess to you, Lord, that As we're still being sanctified, we have that tendency to doubt and to value your gifts above you, to trust in the things that you've made instead of trusting in you, to hold them back and say, we don't trust you with this, we we need this. For that reason, Father, I pray that the work that your Holy Spirit has begun in us this morning by pressing upon our hearts, pray that he would continue that work until we surrender. Pray that you would do that as an act of mercy and grace and kindness. So that this congregation would be the kind of congregation about which the world around us would say, those people have been blessed extraordinarily for some reason. And we will know why. We have given ourselves completely to you. We pray for your grace to do this, Father. We ask for it boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.